Welcome back, Warriors. Tensei Sego Anibuju, Quainin de Luizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. But it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And we all do that in many, many different ways. And think about the whole aspect of Native governance and self-determination. It's very much based on our traditional laws, which have been developed over time, and which have changed over time, and continue to change based on changing circumstances, changes, changing needs, but at the core, our fundamental core principles from nation to nation to nation doesn't really change in our laws. The fact that it's always about protecting people, it's about protecting land and the water, it's about protecting all of the plants and animals, birds and fish, it's about being good to one another, it's about the collective. When you think about it, that's a lot like what human rights or environmental rights are about. And it's just, you put those things together and you even get to start to understand what some native laws are. So think about human rights, for example. There are also laws that protect people, but they can also protect the collective. And they can also, and probably even more importantly, protect the laws of the collective. So if you think about the most recent United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that was recognized as having applicability in Canadian law, it protects the Indigenous right to be self-determining. It protects our governance rights. It protects our governing all over our territories and waters. It protects our people. But it also protects our laws, which protect a whole bunch of things like plants and animals. One of the people that knows this all too well is this amazing person I know called Zoe Craig Sparrow. She is absolutely a fantastic person. And throughout this podcast, you're going to see just why I love her so much. She has a bachelor's degree in political science she, from UBC. She also has a master's in human rights from the University of London. And, you know, not just a master's, but it was awarded with distinction. So you know she's a pretty smart cookie, and she's currently working on her PhD in human rights. So she's gonna, you're gonna be able to call her Dr. Human Rights in the future. She's a member of the Musqueam Indian Band, and she was born and raised on reserve in Vancouver. And how I got to know her is that she's currently the Director of Indigenous Rights and Environmental Justice at an organization called Justice for Girls, and we'll talk about that. And she's also a fellow with the David Suzuki Foundation, one of my favorite foundations ever. But before we get into all of her work, let's welcome her to the show. Welcome, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me, Heichka. It's great to be here. I'm coming to you for today from the Lenape territory in what is now called New York City. Um, back and forth between here in Vancouver, which I'm very lucky to be able to do, and thrilled to be joining you today, Pam. Thanks for having me. Well, I I'm pumped. I, you know I love your work, you know I'm a fan of you, but before we get into your path, your journey, all the different work you do, is there, I always give an opportunity for you to introduce yourself the way you want to, like if you want to do it in your language or talk about your community or your family, whatever you like. Absolutely. So my name is Zoe Craig Sparrow. I am a Musqueam, Musqueam young woman from the Hunkamenim speaking Hamathqueen peoples, which is now called Vancouver, our traditional territory. I was born and raised on the Fraser River with my family by my amazing mother, Laura Sparrow, um, who is an incredibly strong Indigenous woman that I look up to so much and has taught me so much. My grandparents are Ed and Susan Sparrow. And, you know, the connection to land and water and human rights, indigenous rights, women's rights. For me, that truly came from growing up on our traditional territory in, in Vancouver as, as a young indigenous girl myself and fishing the waters. Um, I'm actually also a fisher fisherwoman. Um, so I grew up fishing with my grandpa. He taught me how. And then ultimately, um, my mom and I were fishing together and my aunts. We were one of the only all-woman fishing crews, fishing salmon um, wow. in the Fraser River. Yeah. So I, 
that female empowerment connection to the land and waters and just really seeing the interconnectivity of our rights, our culture, our lifestyle, the environment um, was ingrained in me from such a young age from my culture and then um, easily transitioned into advocacy and activism, which I started more formally uh, at the age of 12. So <laughs> I've been doing this work for most of my life at this point, um, which really defined me, I would say for sure. And I'm honestly just so fortunate for my family and my community um, who without them, I certainly would not be here today. Oh, well, that that's awesome. And for anyone who doesn't know, Maybe you could just let them in on the really cool fact about who you're related to. There's a very famous case uh, by one of your relatives. Ron Sparrow. So as a sparrow, the Sparrow decision is a huge part of our lives and our rights as Musqueam people. And the Sparrow decision is a really fundamental um, case that set precedent for Indigenous rights, not only um, in BC and Canada, but actually all around the world. And when I think of the Sparrow decision, I, I really think it's so important because not only did it secure and protect our right to fish, it secured something that goes beyond that, which is our ability to evolve and thrive and adapt with our culture and have that still be our culture. So just because we might have been fishing one way, 5,000 years ago doesn't mean that as Indigenous people today, we have to be doing it the same way. We're allowed to take our aluminum gillnet boat out um, and go fishing, right, with our own supplies. And we're allowed to adapt and evolve and still have that be a part of our culture. And to have not just eating fish or access to food uh, as a cultural right, but also the ability to go out on the water um, and, and fish and that action of fishing, however we define it, to be protected as a right. And Actually, a fun fact I think that most people don't realize is that um, uh, the community member, the sparrow who who actually was charged in that case, it wasn't just an accident that his net was was too big. So it, he was he was arrested for having too big of a net and started triggered this whole um, court case. That was not an accident. It was actually an intentional decision by our community to to gather. Um, to, to select Ron and, and to work together to identify here's, here's laws and rules that we think are interfering with our rights and our culture, and here's how we're going to challenge them. So we sent him out, we knew the net was too long, and we knew he was going to be arrested and can trigger this court decision so that we could fight and prove um, for our rights under Section 35. And it's so historic. So for any of the listeners who say haven't followed native law here in Canada or any of the Supreme Court of Canada cases, this is the first case that considered Canada's constitution, section 35, and that little section that says it protects Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, of which First Nations are one. And so this case said fishing rights, the constitutionally protected right of that particular group to fish was took priority over every other interest except conservation. And that it was such an important case at the time. And what I really like about, you know, your story, the fun fact that it was, you know, that you did it on purpose is, you know, all the way over on the other end of the coast, you've got Donald Marshall Jr., who also went fishing for eels and sold it, knowing that fisheries and oceans would be there to arrest him and really take that all the way to court to prove that we all also had a treaty right, not just an Aboriginal right. So it's neat how we're connected that way through fish. And it's also neat how despite our major landmark Supreme Court cases that we've won, we still continue to have to fight and push for our rights to fish. And I know that's something we've worked on and connected on as well. And um, it's something, my mother's actually the fisheries manager for Musqueam too. So fishing is so ingrained um, in my life and in my rights and in my family that it's, it's so, it's so exciting. I think to see um, that coast to coast collaboration and strategizing in the same way that it, that it really does, um, parallel each other and and follow similar lines of action and planning and strategy. But it's also not very surprising because we do not have very many ways. <laughs> of making so there's protesting, which we've done, and there's court cases, which we've done. So you have to, you kind of have to pick one if you want things to evolve and you want to push for change. Yeah. And you know, what's 
equally funny is last week I was at a fisheries conference for the Atlantic policy of First Nations chiefs, which is basically all the chiefs in the Atlantic region. So New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI and places like that. And we were actually talking about the Sparrow case and, you know, how DFO tried to minimize it and the Marshall case and how DFO tried to minimize it and how we're still trying to assert our rights in that way. Um, but before we get into kind of how you and I got connected and uh, working together on human rights and native rights, you said that you started this at the age of 12. Um, can you expand a little bit on that? Because I always ask our guests to talk about their life journey. And very rarely do I hear, well, at the little tiny age of 12 is when I started this journey for human rights. It's it's so interesting to me because I really do feel like this work was what I was meant to do because I never had to force anything or plan everything. Everything that happened, um, it just felt so natural. And the next steps in my life happened so naturally. So at the age of 12, we had an opportunity um, in our school in grade seven to pick an organization in Vancouver that we were drawn to that we wanted to volunteer with and do an internship with a project. And so I was, I remember reading through all the lists and looking at all the different organizations and I saw Justice for Girls and I read the blurb and it spoke to me so deeply and I, it really triggered a passion that I didn't even know meant so, so much to me. And so I proceeded to do that internship with Justice for Girls, established a great relationship with them at the age of 12. And from then on, things continued to evolve. I stayed connected with them. Um, and then at the age of 15, so three years later, I did a second internship with Justice for Girls, and this one was actually partnered with the David Suzuki Foundation. Again, everything's really come full circle for me because I'm back with both of these organizations now. So then at 15, I did a joint internship on children's rights and really looking at the relationship between children's rights and climate change and environmental degradation. So for me, um, as an Indigenous girl, I did this from the perspective of an Indigenous girl. So I really looked at the unique experiences and rights of Indigenous girls in the context, especially of the environment and climate change. So I worked with both David Suzuki Foundation to learn about climate change and I followed the Rio Plus 20 conference. And so I really got a super strong environmental foundation at David Suzuki Foundation. And then I worked with Justice for Girls and I learned about children's rights, the United Nations, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And ultimately, myself and another young woman, um, Reka, she was 13, I was 15, we co-wrote submissions to the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child um, with Justice for Girls' as submission. And it just evolved from there. We actually ended up traveling to Geneva to speak to members of the Committee on the Rights of the Child during their review of Canada. So actually, we were the only children there, which I think I'm a huge um, proponent of youth voice and youth activism and youth participation. So I was thrilled to be there, but I think it points to the need for more youth activism in this field. And us as children, we talked with committee members. From then, I continued to do speaking engagements, work, collaborations. I ended up um, on Justice for Girls' board of directors for a few years and then ultimately came back to the organization as a co-director in a staff role. And as we've been with them ever since, and now I'm director of Indigenous Rights and Environmental Justice, and have once again joined the David Suzuki Foundation as a fellow. So, oh, it's been 10 years, and I did my internship with DSF and JFG um, 10 years ago That that as a little baby Zoe going to the UN. And then now here I am as a fellow with David Suzuki and a director with JFG. That's phenomenal, you know, and I think your message about youth being involved, you know how you go to lots of meetings or you hear from politicians or leaders, oh, youth are the future and it's important to include youth, but then you will go and look around and say, um, I don't see any youth here. I don't see any consultation with the youth mm -hmm. and not just youth, but like kids. Yes. So, you know, one of the, this just reminds me of one of my favorite people, Dr. Cindy Blackstock how she went to the UN and she didn't go by herself. She took kids, you know, mm -hmm. went in there and made her presentation with kids or she goes into court 
and it's with kids and and kids submissions and kids get to watch and kids get to participate and i feel like you you are just a prime example of why (laughs) it's so important well it is and kids are brilliant i think so many people think that children and youth oh they have so much to learn or oh their perspectives they just don't understand the whole world and the systems at place you know they they just don't get it yet i'm of the opposite belief i think children get it better than anyone else oh you can't just save the planet and and stop oil and gas that that's that it's not that simple kids you just don't get it well to kids it is just that simple we need to save our planet and we need to do everything we can to get there and i don't think that their different perspective makes them any less valuable in fact i think it makes it more valuable and not only that children have a right to participate in matters that affect them um article 12 of the convention on the right to the child guarantees that and this convention is the most widely ratified convention in the entire world it's a legally binding treaty and um, Canada has signed on to that, for example. So children are not only um, shouldn't only have be you know brought in to do surveys or focus groups. Children are leading movements. They have the capability, the capacity, um, the passion. And so I love to support children any way I can. We always have uh, young women, teenage girls interning with us at Justice for Girls at all times, so they can inform our work. It's really important to us. And actually, Pam, you said. You know, people always say children are the leaders of the future. And I will say that drives me nuts because children are not the leaders of tomorrow or the future. They're the leaders of today, right now. And I think that discredits them. It's not just, oh, you'll be left with climate change as a problem. Therefore, you should have a say now. No, they're leading on it right now. Um, And it's their lives right now as well. So I think it's just really important to recognize how many incredible youth, especially Indigenous young activists we have across the country and the world right now. And many of them are are women and girls as well. Exactly. And who better to mentor little girls working at Justice for Girls than someone who's gone through it? You're not just you know, attached to their principles and their morals and what they stand for. But you've had a role as an intern, a a directing role in terms of governance, an employment Mm -hmm. role. You've been all over the place. I mean, what an amazing amount of experience for little girls to be able to say, little girls did that? Mm -hmm. I can do that too? That must be something you really, that's so unique about Justice for Girls. It is absolutely. And especially I think um, being indigenous too. And I feel like growing up, um, growing up as an indigenous youth, young woman, girl, so many of the things you see on the news and in the media and um, the media and the greater public tries to portray us as one way. And there's so many stereotypes we have to to, to, to fight and to deal with and so many barriers and systemic challenges to overcome. And it can feel really, really hard to find your place in the world. And so that's why I I love what I do and why I love my journey is because I think it's a true testament to the fact that you can be Indigenous, you can rely on your culture, your teachings, you can find a really unique place. I I loved Indigenous rights. I loved the environment. I loved um, gender analysis and, and women's rights. I loved all of this work and I loved youth and I felt... So it was so hard for me to try to find my place in a very structured colonial world. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know what steps I had to take. But there's something about really authentically being yourself and following your passions and um, and not, not letting society's uh, misconceptions and stereotypes define you. So I think that's what I love about working with um, girls is that we can teach them on their rights. We can help build their confidence and their leadership skills so that they're confident and who they are. They don't have to change. We just want to arm them with more tools and information so they can be whoever they want to be. And they can realize that all these doors that they think are closed are, in fact, we can help open them. Um, and the, a systemic barrier doesn't have to um, doesn't have to cl- close a door for you. If we can educate and inform and empower and get behind um, young Indigenous girls, they, they, can, they can do it for themselves. And I think that's my favorite part of this work. 
Oh, yeah, exactly. And think about all of the young Indigenous girls that we know now who are leading the way. I think of people like Autumn Pelche, yes. who's literally a water ambassador. And, you know, she didn't just speak once at an AFN assembly. And I'm sure she was nervous. We all get nervous. And then you've got the United Nations. I mean, you've it's it's going and doing these things and making a difference. And it actually made everyone sit up and take notice. Oh, wait a second. There's a water issue on First Nations. Water's important. And then it lead, there's a whole cascade of things that happen after youth speak. You know, this little, this Indigenous girl is now just, I'd say, a water expert. She just goes around talking about water, asking us to protect the water and keeping it in the media, for example. Well, and before she did that, if she'd said, hey, I, to a teacher or anyone in her life, oh, I think I want to be a water ambassador when I grow up, <laughs> people would have told her she was crazy. Like, that's not happening, right? Yeah. So she was like, no, I know what I want to do, and I'm going to forge my own path. And I think that's just what I love about Indigenous women. Yeah. We're resilient, and we forge our path exactly the way we want to. So, um, and especially youth. It's, there's, they will not take no for an answer. And, and I love that. <laughs> That's how we survived, right? We want many people who aren't, who aren't, you know, already, I, I don't know what the word is, depressed by what people say they can or can't do. They still have the belief that they can do these things. And those beliefs turn into reality. You know, they're not already dated. They're not already cynical. They're not already, you know, hurt by people saying, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. The, the kind of work that you do is just so important. But that also leads me to a question because you're doing all of this work as a little girl, foundational, important work. Yet as you grow up, you're also doing a Bachelor of Arts. You're also doing a master's in human rights, and now you're working on a PhD. How yeah. does that all fit in? And where did that come from? Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I have always, since, you know, since the age of 12 almost, I have always been attached to some sort of nonprofit, non-government organization, and I've always been in school um, the whole way through. Uh, and I've lived on reserve up until now. So my life was so immersed in all of these areas. I love to learn. I love school. I love learning from my community, my family, and I love learning from um, different people and and different teachers and institutions. So I I just pushed through. I, I graduated high school. Um, I ended up doing my bachelor's degree um, in political science, and I just continued on in school. And I've literally been in school my whole life. Uh, and and I'm just very lucky that I was so well supported by Justice for Girls and by my family um, and my mother, who always, you know, believed in me, told me I could do it. And I think a part of it was that I I, I really wanted to be successful um, to show that it was possible. I remember being a teenager and I saw a news article about this school called Pearson College. It's a United World College um, on Vancouver Island. And I saw the article was saying that so many Indigenous students, almost all of them, were dropping out a few months in because it was too um, academically challenging. There wasn't enough support. And that I saw that article and it made me really sad. And I was like, this is not a message that should be out there. Look at all these Indigenous students failing. So I applied <laughs> and I went and I graduated because I wanted to show that it was possible and help be a part of a change that makes the community and the school and more supportive and accessible for Indigenous kids. So I, I went there um, for two years and then went to UBC after that, fell in love with politics, but didn't know how that was going to, I didn't want to be a politician per se at that point. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do still beyond that. And then as I was finishing my degree, I saw this master's in human rights program. And I said, well, that's perfect because I love rights and it, it's such a broad spectrum of area. And I did my master's fell in love with human rights studies and my PhD was the next logical step. And here I am doing that now. And I really, I, I love to learn. I love to research. I love to study. And I certainly would not be able to do it without really supportive partnerships with the organizations that I work with. And my mother, I have to always keep plugging her in. She'd be upset. <laughs> no, she wouldn't actually. She's very gracious, but 
Um, my dad passed away when I was really young. So my mom raised me mostly by herself. So I, I, I do owe mostly everything to her. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I, I think it's always so important. There's been so many guests on here when I ask them, how did you do what you do? They always hearken back to, it was my grandfather who supported me or my mother, or my father, or my aunties or my community yeah. or whatever it is. And they really, yeah, yeah. Cause no one can do any of this stuff alone. Imagine if you just also had to deal with that additional barrier of not having support or people being against what you're doing. There's enough barriers out there for us. Exactly. And I also have to say that um, not only did I have that really great family and community support, I love my community too. They love celebrating our success, but also um, Justice for Girls' co-founder, Annabelle Webb. I mean, she led my first internship when I was 12 and she always believed in me and the power of my voice and my ability to do this work. And she's the one who sent me the link to the master's in human rights program when I didn't know what my next step is. So it just all happened so naturally. And now um, we work together so closely in this area. So I'm also incredibly grateful to her and truly, I mean, just the amazing women in my life. Yeah. I'm so lucky. And now working with you, Pam, I'm active yeah, yeah. with amazing women um, that I work with and that support me. And I just, I, I wish everyone could have <laughs> all these women in their life like I do the world would be a better place <laughs> yeah for sure but ultimately we can just try to be the women that we had in our lives for somebody else we can be the you know co-conspirator we can be the supporter we can be the one that you know lifts you up when you're feeling totally deflated mm -hmm. I think and of course we could probably start a fan club for Annabelle Webb because I love her and all the work she does. I feel like she just oozes support and lifting up other women of, of all backgrounds, but especially Indigenous women. Absolutely. And especially Indigenous women and especially children. I've She taught me so much about how you can not only just believe in supporting children, but how it actually looks in practice to support youth leadership and to truly get behind youth. It's it's an easy thing to agree with in concept, but in practice, you know, um, it, it, it can be it can be challenging. And she is amazing at at supporting young women's leadership. And I mean, at Justice for Girls now, half of our um, leadership team of directors are young women under 25. Um, it's 75% wow. of our organization are young women under 30. Like it's, we are truly youth led and 50% of our junior staff are indigenous young women under 30. Like we truly are so young women led, indigenous led. And that's a testament obviously to Annabelle, our co-founder and to the leadership she's put into this organization for 23 years. Um, and it's something we're incredibly proud of. Are you hiring right now? <laughs> <laughs> we actually are hiring on and off. We've got two great young women starting with us now. But Aww. I will say we have an employment opportunities section of our website with a mailing list. So if anyone's right. ever interested, um, we send out job applications to that mailing list when they come up. Oh, well, that's actually good to know because there's a wide range of people and ages and backgrounds that listen to this podcast and they often ask for resources or links where they can follow up either for more information or to help support a cause or things like this so that's good to know all the indigenous girls yes. go to that website and well, we do internships as well uh, for yeah. teenage girls and we offer high school credits for doing the internship as well we work with the wow. schools yeah so we'll do training on you on rights on um current issues on um, systems, barriers, challenges, laws. And then we also also public speaking, you know, leadership skills, that sort of work. But then we also for their time, um, they get paid a living wage, but then also get um, school credits. So that for that time, they're not in school. We'll teach them some of those courses. We'll teach them law. We'll teach them women's studies. Wow. Um, and then we'll give them high school credits and work with their schools. The more I learn about justice for girls, <laughs> The more I'm just, wow, super impressed because you work with people in a wide variety of fashions. It's often in a crisis mode and you're trying to collaborate very quickly and you don't ever have time to sit back and say, you know, let me look deeper into this and what they're doing and everything else. And wow, 
Justice for Girls is even more amazing than I knew it was. And all <laughs> But something else I wanted to follow up on, because you often talk about how ecocide and genocide go together. And I think that's a really important connection. And I look at who you're affiliated with. You're affiliated for Justice for Girls. You're talking about human rights but also the David Suzuki Foundation, which is talking about the rights of the planet and nature and everything that's in it. You've, you've had this benefit of being able to work and join those two things together. How did that come about? Yeah, so I think it really came in the first place um, from the fact that I was so interested and, and scared about climate change. So the connections between these areas really became clear to me when I was looking and looking at the impacts of climate change, environmental degradation, toxins, and how they disproportionately impact Indigenous people, women, and children. And who's at the crossroads of Indigenous people, women, and children? Indigenous girls. So that's the really the approach, and I am an Indigenous young woman too, so that's the approach that I started to take was looking really intersectionally at where these issues correlate, how they affect each other, how they impact each other. And that's been my analysis since I was 12. So that's really, that was really how everything got started for me. And then, you know, I did my bachelor's in political science, was really interested again. I was focusing on all of those key areas, also had some philosophy courses in there, um, talking with my community members. And really this genocide ecocide nexus started forming for me and my aha moment was during my masters of human rights and i was working with justice for girls i just come on as co-director and when i was think it was my first week and what i did is i went to feminist deliver the conference that was being held in vancouver and um we split up our justice for girls team some of us went to feminist deliver the parallel conference and i went to women deliver um and I was watching and Prime Minister Trudeau attended and he gave a keynote speech. And this was a couple of days after the findings of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was released. And I remember when the final report came out, it said genocide. It called what happened to what it happened and is happening to Indigenous women and girls, historic and ongoing genocide legally defined it as. So that to me, as I was learning about genocide from an international human rights law perspective, it clicked. And then I was there in the room when Justin Trudeau for the first time said the words and admitted, we accept the findings that this is a genocide. And not only, you know, Pam, but in this world, it's, it's one thing for a report or an inquiry to make a finding. It's another thing for the government and especially the prime minister in this case, to accept that finding and to accept that term. And the power, the legal power of the term genocide is it's critical. It's critical to ending this genocide is the first step is really accepting what it is and that legal definition. So for me, I was sitting there. I was first year of my master's in human rights. I knew I wanted to work on this area. So for me, it just clicked. This is a genocide that the, the um, the National Inquiry's report, final report and calls to justice included areas on extractive industries and the environment. I'd been talking about man camps and it just really, it was an aha moment. And I talked with my supervisor and I said, this, this is what I want to do my master's dissertation on. So for my master's dissertation, I looked at um, 20, 40, 40 years of discourse in historic discourse in Canada and current discourse on genocide and on ecocide and on the relationship between the two of them. So I, I, I studied organizations, reports, findings, movements, um, different organizations, indigenous peoples, leaders, communities. And I, I analyzed and researched everything they had to say about genocide, violence against indigenous women and girls, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, climate change, oil sands, pipelines, extraction industries, damage to the environment and how they connected. And um, now I'm actually doing my PhD on the same topic. I'm expanding it from my master's research. And, uh, but I do have to say that moment of hearing Trudeau officially confirm they were accepting it was a genocide, it changed everything for me. This was already my approach, but that's when I knew the nexus is what I wanted to focus on. Uh, and that's phenomenal because this is all playing out 
in your lifetime. Exactly. You know, like you think about the many generations and generations where all of these injustices happen and they do still continue to happen. And despite all of the advocacy, despite all of the work, you would never get Canada to admit anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's because of all of this groundbreaking work by our ancestors the nonstop advocacy, and now the youth who are saying, we want better than this, and you need to hold yourselves accountable. It's it's phenomenal. So now you're working on your PhD. That'll actually expand on your master's on this. This is going to be such incredible work because it's all playing out right now in terms of there's Human Rights Watch reports about it. There's Amnesty reports about it. There's all of it that are looking at, here's murder to missing. Here's what's happening in the environment and oh look at how they relate together and even as you know the national inquiry said we need to look further into yeah. that relationship between the extractive industry man camps and higher rates of violence and so you're literally working on leading edge stuff that is coming out of all of these reports that are ongoing exactly and that's that's really what drew me to this as well is that it was happening in my life real time it fit perfectly it was just before i had to decide on a topic that the announcement was made and it just it all happened so naturally to me that it was it just made complete sense that i needed to be doing this work and also just as an indigenous young woman myself i think it's really important that this sort of research and advocacy um is led by the people that it's about and so that's what's really important to me who better to go into communities um and talk with indigenous women and and learn about these issues than an indigenous woman so that it it really seems it seems like the best way for me to maximize my knowledge um my expertise in the current moment and i'm hoping it can it can make a difference and it can help draw attention and form a really concrete basis for understanding the connection between these issues so that hopefully it can be addressed. I mean, that's the goal, right, is to understand that extractive projects, extreme energy, they not only impact the environment, um, water, air, animals, lands and people and our health and our rights, but they also are directly connected to this genocide And I really do believe that violence against the earth and violence against women, especially indigenous women, are going go hand in hand. The proof is in the pudding. It's what's happening. But also just conceptually, there's something to me that's so important to look closer at in terms of why is it okay to hurt women and hurt indigenous women? And why is it okay to hurt the earth? Why are these the two things that we continue to excuse, not just excuse, actively perpetuate or ignore or push to the side and not prioritize. And when we think of earth, we call her mother earth and she's a woman too. So I think there's a really deep conceptual philosophical understanding that I also want to get, um, get closer to and understand more and hopefully, hopefully help define this nexus once and for all. So that my goal, my personal goal is to have human rights impact assessments on all of these projects so that we can see how before we have environmental impact assessments, but if we have a human rights impact assessment before a project is approved, that involves going into the community, looking at who's most vulnerable, looking at their concerns, looking at previous projects, what human rights violations could happen, will happen, um, and then mitigating them. And if you can't mitigate them, then not approving the project. So I think there's just a, there's been no clear effort to understand how these projects impact everyone fully um, because it is expensive, but the cost of this work should not be at the cost of our rights. Uh, Well, yes, because human rights aren't actually negotiable. They're not supposed to be negotiable. They're supposed to be, you know, you either respect them or it doesn't go ahead. And I guess, you know, you've come full circle because this concept that, Everybody else in the world has the right to consent or not to medical care, consent or not to kids going on a field trip, you know, consent or not to a contract. But for Native people, we only have the right to say yes, but our right to say no has never been recognized in a fundamental part of human rights, especially the human rights you work on, is to respect our right to say yes, yes with conditions, I don't know, maybe later or no. And and to respect the full gambit of that, because that includes human rights, which includes 
native laws and indigenous laws and and traditions and values and morals and what we consider to be important and you know you're talking about the the cost of it and we all know that the the true cost of a pipeline for example is never measured they only measure it in terms of how many guys is it going to take to build the pipeline what's the cost of materials what's the cost of legal they don't say well what is the cost to the environment or to the people on a long-term basis, on a permanent basis, all of that stuff. And that's why your work is so important. And it's one of the things that I appreciate so much about you and Justice for Girls and David Suzuki Foundation, because it feels like no matter what our particular focus is, because we all have a particular focus on things, mm -hmm. basically, how can you argue with human rights and planetary rights, where we're protecting people in the planet. Ultimately, yeah. those things inherently go together. Absolutely. And it's for everyone. It's not just for Indigenous people. And when you see Indigenous people out on the front lines, children on the front lines fighting for these issues, it's not just for us. It's for everyone. Climate change knows no borders. And I think it's so important that we realize that. We're not just fighting for Indigenous rights. We're fighting for everyone's rights to be applied equally and all, everyone should be equal under the law. And that's why what we're seeing with some people having a right to clean water and some people not, that's racial discrimination. And so we're not just fighting for indigenous rights. We're fighting for everyone to be free of discrimination. We're fighting for the planet. We're fighting for health, safety for generations to come, not just for everyone today, but so that seven generations down the line, there's a planet to live on. There's rights to be had. There's there's food to be eaten. It's This is not just for us and it's not just for now. And I think that's the biggest takeaway from this work. It totally is. And I think for listeners, listen to that because often we think, oh, that's just a U.S. issue over there or that's just an Indigenous issue or that's just a, some other woman's issue. But the kind of work you do when you marry human rights and, and earth rights together is it's for everybody and for native people i think it kind of always has been we've yeah. always been just standing up against people who breach human rights which are for everybody mm -hmm. and and i think uh, like i i really really admire that and uh, i want to get to the part where justice for girls actually came and helped my nation so i didn't have a long history of working with justice for girls i've worked with different organizations you know amnesty fafia the feminist lines for international action leaf like a bunch of different groups but when we were in a crisis in migmagi where there were non native people destroying our lobster nets destroying our boats burning down our buildings, destroying our actual catches, the, the lobster catches that there were, threatening people's lives, shooting at people with weapons, threatening them, being racist, not serving them in stores. And then worse, e like even more than that, going around to the non-native community and intimidating them, saying, don't you work with them, don't you serve them, to really trying to kind of create this barrier around us where if we want to exercise our Mi'kmaq right to fish, which is also a human right, it, it's that we will suffer the consequences. And they made it known that we'd suffer the consequences. And so we reached out. In fact, I didn't even have to reach out. I had, you know... People from Justice for Girls were saying, we can help. We can take up all of this like hard work, the research part and some of the drafting of this while and, and help you make a submission that's an urgent submission while you're also working on the strategy on the ground, while you're also taking steps to protect people. So really helping to alleviate some of that burden in a crisis. And, you know, I have to say it's very, very rare that you ever find an organization that says, here, let me take up some of the burden to help you with X versus, hey, what can you do for my organization? Can you work on this project? Can you submit this? Can you submit that? And that's a, that's a fundamental difference in a relationship with Indigenous peoples. Is that something that you have all thought about consciously, that it was about what can you do to help versus always Native people? helping and contributing? 
Absolutely. It's, it's always been a part of our organization has been going to the community that we want to help and saying, how can we help you? And then actually listening. That's a, that's a foundational aspect of our organization. So if we want to help teenage girls living in poverty um, in Vancouver, struggling with homelessness, access to education, we go to them and say, what are the biggest issues you're facing right now? And how can we help you? If we see something in the news where there's a, um, someone we think we can help dealing with with whatever issue it may be, we'll reach out and say, here's here's something we could do to help. And it, are you interested in that? And they're not, that's fine. But we really like to see as much as we can um, how we can help an individual, but then also, and in, in this case, an individual nation even, but not only how can we help an individual, but how can that inform and contribute to systemic change that can also be made. And so we're always doing this very iterative cyclical cyclical approach to this work where we work on a case-by-case basis and we want that work to push and inform systemic change as well. And especially when it comes to Indigenous peoples and Indigenous issues, when we see a crisis, if there's anything we think we can do to help, we will generally do it. And it's also a little bit of selfishness because at least for me as an Indigenous woman, when I see Indigenous rights being violated, when I see crisis, it makes me sick. It honestly makes me sick. And I I get really emotional. I don't normally get emotional during this work, but it, it can make me incredibly emotional. and I can feel really hopeless, helpless, all of those things. And I think that's a, another part is for as when you're Indigenous, hit against one Indigenous person feels like an attack against all. And I feel that so, so deeply. And even the non-Indigenous people at our organization, we all feel that way. So when we see something happening, we want to help. We want to do something to, to help and make a difference. And for us, we know that, especially in this human rights work and um, engaging human rights or United Nations bodies and making these sorts of submissions. It is a relatively unique skill set that we have. Mm-hmm. And so if there's ways we can introduce that to a strategy or a narrative and we can do it ourselves and we can help, we can collaborate. Um, it's it's really important because it can help the nation or the individual. It can make a difference, but then it also helps build international understanding, awareness, um, dialogue on these issues and helps in the case of the United Nations, and and for that um, submission, it was to the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So in that case, even then, any submissions we make on issues of racial discrimination to this committee helps build their understanding of Indigenous rights in Canada, of race racism in Canada, and that can be applied globally as well. So it's so important that we understand that when you do human rights work, again, it, it help, It can help everyone, even if it's just a little bit and pushing the narrative just a little bit further. And it can really help reaffirm on the grounds, too, for land defenders, rights defenders, that even though our country might not recognize our rights or our rights to protest or to do whatever it is that we're doing or to fish, that this international body and the international community does. And we will continue to work um, to make sure that the international community holds Canada accountable. So it's a bit of a sandwich, international yeah. pressure, domestic action, individual rights, systemic systemic change. It all fits together um, really, really well in my work and in the work of Justice for Girls. I think so too. And there's so many dimensions to this. So you were saying, how can we help? Here's what we have to offer. Not just here, you think about what you need. It's also here's some of the skills that we have and then not take it over. You know, in the old days, how organizations, even well-intended, were like, oh, you need help? Here, I know what's best for you. I'm going to go do X, Y, or Z. In this case, it's collaborative. We're working together. We're working with Mi'kmaq lawyers and drafters and making sure that it's it works for everybody and that we're actually talking and doing this together and it had a real impact so mm-hmm. it's not just a scenario uh at least in this Mi'kmaq scenario where we sent a submission to the uh early warning urgent action process and then it just went off into oblivion and we never know what happened we got a response in a relatively short period of time and it was positive they were very concerned about our human rights and they were saying Canada you need to 
report on what you're doing, what you're not doing, what laws are you going to repeal to make sure Mi'kmaq rights are protected. And that is, it has a, a ripple effect. So sometimes, as you know, people think if it doesn't have an immediate effect, it wasn't successful. But that yeah. has a much larger impact in terms of, listen, someone else outside of Canada looked at this and said, you know what, Canada, you don't look so great. And then there's the political dimension, right, yeah. of the pressure that puts on politicians to maybe approach things a different way, while also building skills with us, because I've never done an urgent, uh, you know, early warning, urgent action process specifically, or what their rules are, or how to draft it so that it appeals to them. And so we're kind of sharing all of our knowledge back and forth. And the fact that it was you who was helping, like, here's the fish lady <laughs> over here helping us with fishing. And it was just seemed like a perfect union and which what's intended by human rights. Exactly. Well, and in that case as well, some of my favorite outcomes are that now that now that committee um, through the early warning urgent action procedure, now the committee on elimination of racial discrimination will continue every time Canada is reviewed to check up on this issue. How how are you supporting Mi'kmaq fishing rights? And more importantly, I actually one of my big takeaways from uh, that UN committee's response to our submission wasn't one of the ones that everyone else saw, but to me, it was that they actually asked for information on how Marshall decision was being implemented in Canadian law. And, and that to me was like mind blowing because that's like where I think we really need more awareness and scrutiny is how are these cases and precedent, precedent making decisions, how are they actually being implemented today? and hearing from the government on that. So that to me was really exciting. And that again, helps everyone. And it helps all nations in the, who have those um, Supreme Court cases or decisions. And it helps move the narrative along even, even further. And so in, in this case, I think it, it is super, super, super important to think about big picture, think about how this is gonna have impact for years to come, for generations to come. And it's not always immediate and that's, the one thing I have to realize from this work is it's not always immediate. Maybe it will lower, um, save some lives, decrease the violence, bring more awareness and scrutiny so that, um, you know, RCP has to be more careful. Uh, whatever, whatever issue it's on, generally, if these submissions get a response, it, it creates media attention and it creates international attention, which is really great. And then I will just say, when you're talking about organizations getting involved, I think the biggest thing that I know from Justice for Girls and that I would recommend to other organizations is that it's just not about you. It's not about you and how good this makes you look or what attention you get from helping these people. If that's the case, it's not genuinely wanting to help. It's wanting to help someone else so that you can help you. And so with Justice for Girls, some of these submissions we've done um, have not been made public because they're not public when you send them to, um, in this case, when you send them in to the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, they're not automatically made public. Only the committee's responses and anything Canada sends back. So some of them we haven't made public because it wasn't necessary to go toot our own horn and say, look at what we did. Um, and it, it's up to the nation if they wanted to do it or not. But we weren't going to push for our organization to say, oh, we want attention for what we did. If it wasn't what they wanted, we won't put our names on them sometimes. And we'll put we'll say it's written by the nation. We're happy to work behind the scenes and to use our skills and tools. And we still get to build relationships, which we think is really exciting and, and engaging. And we also get to help. And that's the benefit for us is we can see the behind the scenes systems being changed, narratives being changed, rights being pushed forward, you know, partnerships and collaborations being made. And that's what is really, really important to us not, you know, getting attention or media attention for our organization. If we can bring attention to the issue, great, but it's not about us. Which is, again, another way and another difference in which you look at the relationship. So think about your family. If I help my sister do something, I'm not going to go broadcast, hey, look what I did for my sister. Or if you help it on Facebook. Read a draft of a paper. You don't make sure, oh, teacher, look, I, I did this editing. You do it because it's family. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the human rights people are 
our family in all of this. And so there's one thing I definitely want to get your opinion on. So thank you for all the work you did for the Mi'kmaq Nation. And I know you do that for many other nations. So this is something that's an ongoing. But there was a lot of talk. There has been many, many years of Native people advocating that Canada recognize and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP. And finally, with Bill C-15, they did. They said, yes, we recognize this has application in Canadian law, which I, I honestly didn't think I'd ever really see. I knew it was a political promise. So what do you think this means for Native rights in Canada, the fact that this is here now at the federal level? I think that, as you said, I didn't expect this to happen. So on a personal level, I am excited. I am happy. I'm pleased. I would certainly rather see it be implemented than not. Mm -hmm. That being said, I take all of these sorts of decisions and exciting news with a grain of salt in that, like the Sparrow decision, like Marshall decision, just because um, you get a win doesn't mean that we'll carry out in practice. And so for me, I'm paying close attention to how this is actually, it's implemented in law, but how are then our laws going to be changed to reflect the rights secured in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? So it's not enough to just say, oh, we believe that Indigenous peoples have a right um, to uh, decision-making on issues and projects on their traditional territory and that they will not go through without their free prior informed consent. That's not enough. We we need to see laws change to reflect that so that projects, in fact, cannot be approved with that, without that free prior informed consent. So the laws need to be changed to reflect that. But then also practices need to be changed to reflect that. Laws can be broken. They can be not ignored. They can be not listened to. So to me, it's really important that we see our laws change to be in line with this declaration and that we see our practices change to be in line with our laws. In BC, um, we know UNDRIP has been um, adopted into provincial law. We're, we're still seeing Indigenous people be forcibly removed from their traditional territories, direct violation of UNDRIP. So we're still seeing that rights, especially those under UNDRIP, can still be violated even um, with it implemented in our domestic law. So I think it's just really important that we continue to pay attention and pressure our government um, to stay accountable and to uphold these promises that they're making. And this is this is a promise that I, I'm not gonna take their word for it, right? So I want to see it changed in action. I wanna see the laws changed and then I actually wanna see the responses um, to indigenous peoples and rights change as well. And I'm really hoping that happens. In a dream world, if all the articles of UNDRIP and especially self-determination, um, if the, they can all be actually you know, protected in our laws, and if our laws can be changed to reflect them, and then, and then um, our lives can be lived according to UNDRIP, I think that would be absolutely incredible, game changer, and it would be a huge step for Indigenous peoples in Canada, and then also around the world, seeing a country like Canada, who initially was one of the four countries who voted no to UNDRIP in 2007. <laughs> To see UNDRIP, you know, actually meaningfully adopted would, would be a huge signifier. And it would actually make Canada as progressive, environmentally aware, <laughs> and, you know, as safe and happy as we claim that we are. Yeah, all of that. It's just all of these tools and no one tool can do everything and no one tool is perfect. There's always problems with everything. But when you put it all together... When you put environmental rights all together and you put human rights all together and you put native rights all together and you actually implement it, respect it, protect it, enforce it, monitor it, that will give us what we need around the world. And, and I think it's such a profound thing to work towards. And I, and I think I also take your message to heart, too. It's more than words. It's more than stated commitments. It's more than a policy. It's more than a law, in fact. It's always about the action. Did you implement it? 
Did you make a change? Did you monitor it? Did you make sure it's working? Did you need to adjust? And are native people taking the lead on all of these things? So this is just really profoundly important work that you do. But before we let you go, I also wanted to ask you about something else that you work on. And I don't know if it's related to human rights or not, but our <laughs> listeners might be interested to know that you're also on First Talk on APTN. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So as we were talking about my childhood, all my experiences growing up, I didn't mention that I've also been um, a part of various TV shows on APTN for a large portion of my life. So after I went to the UN when I was 15, um, I actually was contacted to be a part of my first APTN show, which was called You Equals Us. And it was all about youth empowerment and showcasing positive Indigenous youth stories. So I hosted that show. And then I stayed connected to APTN and to the producer of that show, Tamara Bell. And now Tamara Bell is the host of First Talk on APTN. And I've been really fortunate to be a part of Talking Stick, the panel on that show, where we um, discuss really exciting, important, controversial, sometimes funny topics and issues on First Talk. So season six airs on APTN, um, I believe weekdays right now, which is really exciting. And I encourage everyone to check it out because it's it's really exciting. You get to see Indigenous people from all different walks of life with all different perspectives, um, discussing, debating, engaging on so many different topics. And I'm I'm really excited that I on, that I get to be a part of that show because I do so much of this work attached to so many different organizations. And it's really fun for me to do this sort of thing with you, Pam, and first talk because I just get to be myself and talk about my perspectives and my ideas. Um, and do it really organically, which when you're working on policies yeah. and all, all this stuff all the time, it can get really dry and you have to be very careful with your parameters. So it's really fun to just talk and engage and chat with different Indigenous peoples about our issues in a really safe space. And I have a great time doing it. And um, I've heard people have a fun time watching it. So yeah. I would encourage you to check it out. Oh, that's awesome. It's one of the main reasons why I do podcasts or YouTubes or anything else, because it's, I need something else in addition to the advocacy and research and work. And, you know, when we're in crisis mode to just sit down and talk to people and pick their brains. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Who supported you? What matters to you? How can we save the world ultimately? And you know, this podcast is about lifting up the voices of grassroots people, our land defenders, our water protectors. And it's just, it also fills you up with hope when you Absolutely. actually hear other people engaged in all of these things. So it fills up my glass. It's so yeah. me because I go on vacation from my regular work and my whole vacation I spend filming first talk, <laughs> the first talk family, but I love it. Like more, it's, it honestly gives me more, it makes me feel more relaxed and happy and hopeful yeah. and excited than sitting at home for two weeks or going on a vacation, it fills me up with so much Indigenous love and positivity. And that's, I think that's what we really need. That's where mm -hmm. people are. We're, we talk, we build communities, we share. And, and, and that's, that's how we keep going and how we survive and how we build resilience. So I love to do it. So thank you so much for having me. You've filled up my cup for the day. I'll be able to get some work done this week. <laughs> and vice versa. Thank you. Every time I talk to you, you just... Oh, okay. I was so tired. I was so depressed about whatever. And then you're saying, Oh, look at all these wonderful things happening. Look at ways we can empower Indigenous girls. And it's like, Yes, okay. I've got my energy back. So I'm so thankful to all of your ancestors, to your community, to your family, to everyone who's had a part in your life who helped encourage you to be who you are today and the powerhouse that you are because we all benefit from it. And I know I've personally benefited from it. And Zoe, I can't thank you enough for all of your work and coming on the show to share it with people. Well, thank you, Pam. You, you and your work has been such an inspiration to me on my journey as well. And seeing loud and proud Indigenous women like yourself, um, it really inspires me to be who I want to be and to not be afraid to say exactly what you're thinking and what you mean. Because <laughs> a lot of the time, 
people are like, oh, you know, maybe don't say that. Don't offend people. But <laughs> you and your passion more than anything inspires me to be my authentic self and Aww. to say exactly what I'm thinking and what I mean, because that's valuable as is. And I know you inspire lots of people to live their truth and their authentic self and to um, stand up if they're seeing issues that they believe in, if they're seeing injustices and fights. So I'm I'm so happy to know you and to work with you. And you honestly, you inspire me. And as you said, I look forward to continuing to hopefully embody you and Annabelle and my mom and all the women who have inspired me for the next generation. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's just awesome. I love this. This is a phenomenal podcast. Listeners just listen to it a multitude of times. It's very <laughs> uplifting. And thank you to all the listeners of this podcast, the Warrior Life Podcast, and to the viewers who view it on YouTube. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for every time you share it or use it in a classroom to talk about these issues or use it in your community to make sure that Indigenous voices are always the ones leading the way. I really appreciate everything that you're doing to be brothers and sisters in this mission or as friends, allies, supporters, whatever you want to call it. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And I'll make sure to post links to all of these uh, organizations. And of course, this is Zoe's Twitter handle. You can follow her on Twitter and see what she's up to and what reports are coming out and stay in touch. So thank you to everyone. Thank you to Zoe. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliad. We'll